0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, for those of you who might be new here, my name is George Gray. I'm the senior pastor here at River of Life Fellowship Church. And uh, we've been on this journey through the New Testament. And uh, we've been uh, trugging our way through uh, the book of Matthew. And we find ourselves all, all the way into chapter 13. That's right. That's right. Saying We sh- we should get through the New Testament, I'm guessing, somewhere in around 10 years. It should be fine. It's all good. Um, but uh, uh, it's, it's just been a lot of fun. And as we continue through this um, Today, we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew 13, verses 24 through 53, and we're in this section of parables. And uh, today, what we're going to do is we're actually going to cover six parables. Um, so I hope you don't have lunch plans. Um, so it should be all good. But uh, four of these parables that we're going to look at today, they're all, they're, they're all, all except uh, one of them are actually relatively short, so this won't, this won't be uh, terribly painful today. Um, but four of these parables are only found in this chapter of Matthew. They're not found in any of the, any of the other Gospels. And um, instead of dealing with each one necessarily individually in depth, what I'm going to do is I've grouped these into three basic groups because they lend themselves to that. So each, each set of two parables basically says the same thing. So what I want to do is kind of group these up and have, this, have a little bit of a conversation as we walk through. It might be a little out of order, but you'll understand what we're doing as we, uh, as we go. And the three groups that I'm looking at today are basically this, God blesses the little things, praise God for that right? Um, Some of you will figure that joke out later. Um, The second is, it's worth it. And the third is, there will be a day of judgment. We're looking at these three groups um, through these parables today. And remember, while we're doing this, whenever you hear the term, the kingdom of heaven is like, one of the easiest ways to understand how to apply that parable is to basically rephrase that into, this is what it looks like when God is at work. Those two phrases are relatively interchangeable when it comes to the parables. So when you read that, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, you can insert, this is what it looks like when God is at work, okay? Um, it helps it be a little bit more earthly and a little less, uh, little less heavenly. So we'll, we'll see what that means here in a second. So the first point we're going to deal with is that God blesses the little things. Um, and we're looking at the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. And it reads like this, starting in verse 31, it says, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven... Is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Another parable he spoke to them, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. A lot of people like to point out that this idea that, that the mustard seed is not the smallest seed, so ha, we caught Jesus in a lie. Um, you know, God doesn't even understand creation, so meh, I don't need the Bible. And I've, I've, I've heard this argument, which is funny, but people forget that we're talking about first century Israel, and that's the smallest seed they knew of. It's, it, it usually doesn't make sense to give someone a reference to something that they know nothing about. It's very unhelpful. They'll usually nod and go... I don't know what you're saying. So we're going to keep things in the context of where it was. So the point of the parable, either way, is not the seed. It's not the seed on its own. The point of the parable is what it can become, what that little tiny thing can become if it's just left alone. Just because something has a small, humble beginning does not mean that it is insignificant, okay? Okay. Time will show the truth. No matter how small something you do starts, time will show the truth of the power within that effort, okay? There's a lot of strength in that little seed. But the funny thing about this is the seed, the the, the strength in the seed is best understood if you just don't mess with it just feed it water it and leave it alone and then let it do what it was designed to do if you just feed it and water it and let it do what it was designed to do awesome things can happen if you think about this is this is being compared to other herbs other other plants used for flavoring um this is a little bigger than thyme or rosemary, right? This turns into some of the, some of the difference, so like the tree there on, the, uh, on this side, that's not a tiny little tree. That is a big tree. Now, at the same time, the parable of the leaven, three measures of meal, or let's just say flour, is about 40 liters. It's not a cup, okay? It's about 40 liters of flour. That's, about, that's enough bread, uh, enough flour to make around, enough bread for around 100 people. That's a lot. That's a lot of flour. But the parable is not about flour. The parable is about the leaven and how you only need a little bit to leaven all of the meal. Now, the leaven that they used at that point in time was not like the dry active yeast that we have today, right? It's not, it's not the same thing. Uh, There's a hundred different ways of doing this, but most commonly in this particular point in time, it was a chunk of what was previously made. So if you ever made sourdough, there's always this little part that you start with. It's called a mother, okay? Um, And you have to have that in order to start the sourdough. The older the mother, the better the the, the, the bread tastes. It's kind of funny, right? Grandma's bread is always better than, you know, the little... Anyway, moving right along. So because it's had a chance to mature and it has more power behind it. It has more flavor behind it. And what would happen is they would take this giant pile of meal and they would take this small amount of pre-leavened dough and they would add it in, mix it in, and that's all you needed to do. All you had to, after that, all you had to do was leave it alone. Anyone ever made Amish friendship bread? Right? Right? You get this little thing, you're like, oh, it's cute. The first time you make it, you're like, oh, this is really neat. And so, you know, you mix it, you add a little flour, wait a little bit, and then you freak out because you think something happened. Because like this weird bubbly stuff is now on your counter. You put plastic wrap on it, now it's like all bubbled up, like, oh my gosh, it's alive. Because it is. <laughs> right? It's roughly the same thing. Now, here's the thing. And how many of you uh, here have ever made bread or baked anything? Right? You ever accidentally put baking soda in when the recipe called for baking powder because you thought, What's, what could possibly be the difference? <laughs> right? Then you realize, oh, there's a difference. <laughs> when you add a leavening agent to a dough, you cannot remove it. It's, it's done. The only thing you can do is start over. If you didn't want it, you shouldn't have added it because once it's there, It is through the entire batch, and you only have to mix it once. That's pretty interesting, because the amount of leaven that would have been used for those 40 liters of dough, roughly the size of my fist, probably smaller, doesn't take much for leaven to permeate everything around it. All you have to do is feed it and water it. You give it a little more flour and a little water, boom, it's active, it's awesome. Now I want bread. <laughs> I, want, like, I remember being in Panera, in Panera yesterday and I saw this nice crusty loaf of sourdough up there and I was like, I should buy that for an object lesson for tomorrow. It's like, who am I kidding? I just want to eat it. <laughs> I would have brought it and it would, like, the end would have been cut off, I would have scooped all the middle out and just had this hollow thing of dough, like, isn't this great? But the thing that I find interesting is that all you have to do is leave it alone and let it do what it was designed to do. Leaven has a purpose. Mustard seed has a purpose. Now, did you notice that both the parables talk about things that don't need your help to exist? Both of the parables talk about something that doesn't need your help to exist. So if I were to put that term in there, this is what it looks like when God is at work. He doesn't need your help. When God is at work, you are not the primary role in whatever he's doing. Because what he wants will happen. Now, did mustard trees exist before someone planted them? Yup. They kind of grow all by themselves. I got a couple of trees growing across my fence. I didn't plant them really want to get rid of them. Happened all by itself. Did leaven exist before we started making it? Of course it did. I can't remember. Yeah, I think it's called lambic. There's a type of beer made in, made in Holland. It's actually the, the yeast that's in it is actually from the air during a certain time of the year. They would leave the 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 pools where it would be fermented open, and the air would come across it, and it would actually the yeast would actually infect the beer all by itself. It was just in the air. It's awesome. Kind of hard to guess when that's going to happen. Did the pastor just talk about beer? Yes, he did. (laughs) Didn't ask you to go out and buy it. It's just an example. It's fine. Shh, Shh, it's okay. It's all good. All of these things exist without our help. But on the other hand, if we want to benefit from these things, it requires something of us. These are things that exist outside of our control. They just happen because it's the way God designed them to work. But if we want to benefit from these things, it requires that we submit ourselves to the process, right? We submit ourselves to the natural process of things. If you want to grow something, have you ever tried to make things grow faster? How does that work? Do you imagine you know, a farmer out in his field, just planted, planted corn, planted it a late, and he's running or walking through the farm, going, "Come on! Come on! I've watered you with coffee!" This should be working. It doesn't, you know what's gonna happen? Nothing. You just have to submit yourself to the process. You ever tried to make bread rise faster? There's some good comedy shows about that and why you shouldn't do it. You submit yourself to the process. It means we engage in a natural activity and we allow it to do it all by itself. If we want to benefit from it, we have to submit ourselves to it. I remember talking with someone once. They were, they were, uh, they were trying to bake something and they were running out of time. And um, you'll, you'll, you'll love this. They said, so I didn't have time, so I turned the oven up, which is always a great idea. You know what that bread needs? 500 degrees. That's what that bread needs. And we're like, yeah, the inside wasn't really done, but the outside was really done. Yeah. That's what happens. It doesn't work. You have to submit yourself to the process. All we have to do is feed and water and let it do what it was designed to do. Feed and water. And let it do what it's designed to do. Your life in Christ is actually almost identical. All you need to do is feed and water it and let God do in your life what the presence of God was designed to do. Let me give you an example. In Amos, you know, everyone loves reading the book of Amos. Chapter 8, verse 11, it says this, says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of God. Of the Lord, food, water. What is he talking about? He's talking about the Word of the Lord. Is that which feeds us? It's the food we eat, the water that we drink. Is the Word of the Lord constantly through Scripture? The Word of God is referred to our food and our water. It both cleanses us, cleanses us and it sustains us. The thing we don't like is that we need to submit to the process. Here's what I find a lot of people doing. They'll read the Bible. They'll memorize little parts of it because, you know, it's tr- you never know when you're going to play Bible Trivial Pursuit with someone. So you got to have that, you know, you got to know those names. You got to put the books in order. You got to know all the characters, and that's really great. But they've never submitted themselves to it, and the process does nothing in their life because they think they have a role to play in that. That's not what happens. When you are committed to learning and living, both have to exist at the same time, when you're committed to that, the Word of God will do what it was designed to do all by itself. All you have to do is feed and water your spirit. How do we do that? By learning and living the Word of God. It will change you all by itself. You don't have to go to the the 10-step program on how to become a better Christian doesn't matter if you want to live your best life now. None of that stuff makes a difference if you don't commit yourself to learning and living the Word of God. Point number two, it's worth it. The next set of parables has one simple truth between the two, but two distinct applications. See if we can see this starting in verse 44 through 46, and it reads like this. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. here's the simple truth between these two parables. What God has for us is more valuable than anything else we could ever hope to obtain on our own. It is worth more than our lives combined. That is how precious what God is offering us is. There are two basic applications. The first one is the one everyone usually goes to, and that's the afterlife. You know, when we leave this, this body and this world and we go to the next, God has promised us through His Son, forgiveness of sin, redemption, and the gift of eternal life. How does it get any better than that? You think about this, knowing we know on this earth, everything living dies. Everything. It's a disease that affects one out of one of us. None of us get out of this life alive. Awesome, right? How valuable is the type of peace knowing that there is no fear in leaving this world? How much is that worth to you? To be able to stare death in the face and go, You? Oh, yeah, fine, you know, whatever, let's get it over with. To have no fear of what's coming next, how valuable is that? I know people, even in the church, who are constantly fearful of death, which makes me go, "What are you? What are you? What are you doing?" Well, you know, I just, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, because you're like, you never know. I'm like, no, you're a Christian. You should know. This should not be hard for us to understand. We leave this world. We go to the next. Absent in the body, present with the Lord. Here one minute, there the next. I'm, I'm good with this. Like I say, if things get really hard on this earth, the worst thing someone can do to me is send me to heaven. Bummer. I just want to make sure I eat as much as I can before I go. I, did I say that out loud? I did. I did. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. that kind of peace has no value. It, I would say it's it's beyond putting a value on. But at the same time there's this life, right? When you become a Christian, guess what? You don't suddenly you're in heaven. Oh, if it was like that, how easy would that be? Evangelism would be a little hard. You accept Christ, you get to go to heaven right now. Why are you still here? Eh, I'm on the fence. <laughs> That's not what happens. I try to tell people all the time, you can come to the altar, and you can get on your knees, and you can, you can, you can, you can confess everything before the Lord. You can, you can spill all your beans, and that's, that's fine. You get up, and you've been, you've been saved. You're redeemed. You're, you're, you are now one of His, and that's fantastic. You still got to go to work. You still got to go home. You might still have to deal with your kids. Wife, husband, in-laws. All that stuff still happens. You get arrested for a crime, go to jail and get saved. Guess what? When you wake up, you're still in jail. (laughs) It's kind of the way it works. So there's this life that we have to live at the same time. Now, I've always heard these parables compared to salvation, the value of God's grace and forgiveness, and that's all good and true. But did you notice that both of the things that they attained are things that are attained physically in this world? The field is something you can actually... Possess the pearl is something you can actually possess. They got rid of everything in their life in order to attain this one thing, and I had to ask myself, what is something that we can actually attain in this life that is completely worth losing everything? I think the the field and the pearl can not only represent the value of salvation. I think it can also represent the value of a life. Dedicated to serving the mission of the gospel. A life dedicated to the mission of serving the gospel. I think that's worth getting giving up everything. Last week Jay talked about being a living sacrifice. This is exactly what this is talking about. You want to go one way and God says, I really would like it if you would go this way. In order to embrace what God has for you, you have to lay down what you wanted. I didn't go to culinary school to become a minister. When I went to culinary school, I was not even a Christian. I was very much not a Christian. I got saved after I got home. And right around the time I got saved, I had multiple offers to go off and do different things. And I was more than happy to take any of the offers that got me out of New York. Then Jesus messed everything up because I knew at that point I was not in the career field that I would be in for the rest of my life. But I also was smart enough to know that I needed to know more than I knew at that point. So I had to dedicate myself to study, to learning, to gaining experience, understanding. Was not, it was not what I wanted with my life. And you have to start in small places. No matter how small your part may be right now, do you value that part and are you thankful to be that part? That's, that's such an important question for us. We want the pearl of great price. We want the field with the treasure in it. But maybe you have to start, I don't know, building the business to the point where if you sold it off, you could actually afford to get those things. You understand what I'm saying? They could afford what they were looking for because they had the resources behind them. They started somewhere small, and God built them to something large. So sometimes when we talk about living a life dedicated to the the spreading of the gospel, we we need to start someplace. That means you've got to start someplace small. So many people are unwilling to start someplace small. They're more than willing to give up anything for a place of prominence and influence. Sure, I'll walk away from my career if God puts me into a church where I can make six figures, have vacations and 401ks and retirement, and I have thousands of people listening to me and this is all. I would totally do that. What if, I don't know, what if God wants you to clean the bathrooms? I'm sorry, what? Like the bathroom bathroom? no matter how small your part might be right now, do you value it and are you thankful to be that part? How many of you remember the Challenger explosion? I know a lot of you were not alive. I watched it on TV, live. <laughs> so the Space Shuttle Challenger was the first like big modern times uh, uh, NASA disaster. And it it was under all kinds of investigation. And it was just like, you know, this this, this thing was supposed to be like indestructible, so well put together. I mean, what a marvel of modern technology. Anyone remember what actually caused the problem? It was called an O-ring. It was basically a manufacturing default in a gasket. It wasn't even part of the space shuttle. It was part of one of the booster rockets. And it was made, I think it was made four years and actually assembled somewhere like three or four years before that shuttle actually took off. A tiny manufacturing defect in an insignificant part that no one was even thinking about until the night before, because it was cold. Everyone's looking at the space shuttle, wow. Look at this thing. Wings, big engines, all these computers. It's so awesome. It's kind of like you've got a satellite in it. I mean, there's so much stuff in there. It's just so awesome. Who cares about the plastic gasket on a booster rocket? But it was the insignificant part that was overlooked and not valued that took the whole thing apart very quickly. When Elon Musk has a ship that falls apart. He calls it a, um, uh, a rapid disassembly. No, RU, I'm sorry, rapid unscheduled disassembly. That's what he refers to it as. He won't call it a, an accident or an explosion. It's a rapid unscheduled disassembly. The space shuttle was rapidly and unscheduled disassembled with everybody in it because one part that people thought was not necessarily as significant as it should have been was overlooked. Isn't it interesting how it's the insignificant things, the things we look oh, we overlook, the small parts that we think are not necessarily as important, are really the things that are holding everything up. See, I might be standing here preaching, but here's the reality. If you're not here, I got no one to speak to. If there's not someone back in the sound booth, I got no volume right? If there's no one back in the nursery, your kids get to stay here. If there's no one back in kids' church, and your kids get to stay here, right? It's all of the surrounding support mechanisms that make every large organization work. And if we don't value the little things... Then God knows we will never truly value the big things. If you are faithful in the little things, you will be faithful in the big things. If you think you have a calling on your life and you want to be, you want, you desperately want, I, I know what God wants in my life, and I can't wait for that to happen, but you are not willing to do the little things in the beginning, then the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price is something you will never attain. Because you're not willing to do the, 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 the smaller things to get there. God does not drop big influential ministries on someone's lap. He builds people up to the point where he knows that they'll survive under the weight of them. I've watched people get handed ministries that they were not prepared for. Because they happen to be the right person in the right place or have the right last name. They were handed a ministry that they did not do the small work for, and they destroyed it year after year after year because they couldn't stand up under the weight of it. It's the success in the little things that allows us to find the success in the big things. You want to see what God has for you? You want the pearl of great price? You want the field with the treasure in it? Start small and let God build you and value the little things. One of the things I like about the parable of the, of the field is that you don't know what the treasure is. You have no idea what the treasure is or how big the field was. And I love it when you think, you think of an adult and you think of like, what, what, what kind of treasure would you find in the field that you'd sell everything that you own in this world to buy that field? And they're talking like, I don't know, Aztec gold, you know, diamonds, rubies, emeralds, sapphires, that's great. Ask a five-year-old What kind of treasure they would need to find in the field to sell all of their little toys to buy that field, and it will be the silliest thing you've ever seen in your life. A toy they've been waiting for. I don't know, a half-rotted squirrel because they think it's so awesome. Stuff we would never value. But to them, it's the most amazing thing ever. Treasure in the eye of the beholder? What is it that God has placed in front of you and do you value it and will you give everything you have to it? If you're not, why? Why not? What's holding you back? Is it that you don't think, do you think it's beneath you the thing that God has placed in front of you that is actually the stepping stone to the very calling of your life? Is it beneath you Because you refuse to value it. Value everything that God has placed in front of you. Because it's worth it. Whether it's this life or the life to come. All right, point number three. There will be a day of judgment. There are multiple types of parables. And there's a bunch of them that teach us. And then there are those few that warn us. We love the teaching ones because they're encouraging, they're awesome. And we don't like the warning ones. And the warning ones, believe it or not, actually seem to have a little bit more detail in them. The encouraging ones are like a sentence. The warning ones are like, you know, three paragraphs. I think God's trying to tell us something. So in the parable of the wheat and the parable of the dragnet, basically they read like this, starting in verse 24. We're going to be jumping around a little bit, so just kind of watch the screen. It says, another parable he put forth them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. And went his way And when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, "Sir, do you know uh, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares?" And he said to them, "An enemy has done this." And the servant said to him, "Do you want us to go uh, and, and gather them up?" But he said, "No, lest while you gather the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest." And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares, bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went to the house and the disciples came to him and said, I'm sorry, what did that mean? And he said to them, he who sows the good seeds is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the, in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. So the Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out, uh, out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire, and they will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has an ear, let him hear. Secondly, he says, and again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to the shore and sat down and gathered and uh, gathered to the good, in, uh, the good into the vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is a difficult parable because it talks about something that we don't like to talk about, especially today. I've, I've visited a number of churches, and, and a couple. And periodically, I'll get, I'll get. I'll, it's, it's always funny. So uh, periodically, I'll get one guy. Um, there's there's one guy down at Dick Beaumont's church, and whenever I'm preaching, he's always like, "Man, I wish you would just like, just just go for it right at the end, because people are like right at the point of like, you know, like you know, snot repentance. You know, it's just like they were just like right there, I'm like you could you could have just gone. I'm like that's great, but there's always somebody else who's like, you should never teach something that's convicting. And I'm like, from the Bible. Have you read it? Just curious. Just just asking a question. So you always get both of those, both of those sides. But there's a a movement in the church today we don't want to we don't want to talk about judgment. We don't want to talk about sin. There's some people who actually say sin doesn't exist. I think my favorite bit of nonsense is that sin is just a the uh, uh, there's no sin except the sin of mistaken identity I laughed at that out loud. I thought it was the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Could you you imagine? Jesus looks down at the lady caught in adultery says, get up and try to remember who you are. (laughs) What what does that even mean? (laughs) Pretty sure he was like, sin no more. Sin's real. Judgment is real. That's why he says those who will be cast away are those who practice lawlessness, which means there is law that we are accountable to it, whether we like it or not. And the parable of wheat, one of the things that we're reminded of is we are not growing in a world of purity. You may not have realized this. This may come as a surprise to you, but the world around us is not the world that God intended to create. This world is messed up. Want to know who messed it up? We did. Humanity. Imagine all the animals are like, I didn't do it. Now, this is, this is very much a broken world of our own making. It's not the world that God gave us. We opened the door for sin. He warned us. We did it anyway. So we are right where our choices have brought us. It's gotten this way. You can go all the way back to Genesis. Genesis. Because we did not use God's word as our standard for right and wrong. We used our desires for our standard of right and wrong. That was the sin of Eve and the sin of Adam. They went after their desires and they ignored the word of God. It's like God was hiding something from them. We traded our wheat for tares, and this is the result. We are growing in a world that was sown with, e- sown with evil by our enemy. You know, it's, it's kind of funny that, uh, that um, Jesus says that the, the good are the sons of, of God, the evil are the sons of the, of, of the wicked one, right? What is it? We go all the way back to Genesis, I think it's 315, that I will put enmity between your offspring and hers. Isn't that funny how that wording is on the opposite side? Enmity means war, means conflict, it means battle against your offspring, talking to the devil, and hers, talking to the woman means the fruit of righteousness and the fruit of evil. And here we are, Jesus is talking about the separation of that at the end days. But the evil in this world is crafty. If it was obvious, if, if, the, if the evil was so obvious, we wouldn't have any, any issues. We would be able to see it and go, that's stupid, I'm not doing that. But that's not what the devil does. The devil makes evil look very, very close to the good. You got wheat and you got tares now, tares, are gone, they, they go by today a, more, uh, a different term. It's called darnell, okay? They're not good. They're actually a little toxic, but they look a lot like wheat. When they're growing, they look a lot like wheat. And there's a lot of people in this world who would say, you know, I get mad at God because he allows bad things to happen. Praise God that he allows bad things to happen because he lets the evil grow up at the same time as the good. Because if God pulled the plug and just harvested everything, he knows he's going to destroy some of the righteous along with the evil. Evil's going to be destroyed at the end, regardless. It's actually the first thing that's destroyed. You notice the wheat's not harvested first, it's the evil that's harvested first. The reason you do that is to get the bad out so it makes it easier to bring the good in. This is one of the reasons why I continually warn people about listening to those who are really quick to pull out the God card. One of the interesting things about telling the difference between what's good and what's bad is knowing what to look for. This is why we're constantly told throughout scripture to learn the word, to learn the word, to understand the difference between the truth of God and the truth of man. They're not the same. Man can do some good things, but that does not necessarily mean that it's godly. There is a difference between good and godly. Good is based on our standards. Godly is based on his standards. They're not necessarily the same thing. So when people uh, are really quick to pull out the God-told-me card, but then they devalue the written Word of God. The Spirit of God within me told me this. I know it's against what the Bible says, but that Bible's just that old book. Who listens to that? I don't know. People call believers. Call me crazy. But I think this is something that God wants us to value. I think He actually says... If you don't value my words, you don't love me. Well, he couldn't have been talking about the Bible. I don't know. Was he? Let's test that. John 14, 23 to 26. Uh, Let's see. I think I put that in the wrong spot. Yeah, we'll go here. It says, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord... Now, listen to this question. How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world. The question is, why are you telling us who you are, but you haven't told the world who you are yet? Listen to his answer. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. It's not just Jesus' word, it's God's word. Now listen to this. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, Whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things I told you. Now I need to take a step here for a second, because that last verse is used by so many people to delegitimize the written word of God and to give evidence to the reason why I don't need the Bible. I have the Holy Spirit. See, even the Bible says I only need the Holy Spirit. It's not what the Bible says. So one of the things we need to do is we need to go to a slightly more literal translation so that we can get a clearer idea of what the original language says. So here's what I think is the better translation from the complete Jewish Bible. In verse 26, it reads like this. But the counselor, the Ruach HaKodesh, which means the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything, that, uh, will teach you everything semicolon, When you see that in Scripture, immediately you know what is coming after is a restatement of what was just before, okay? We'll teach you all things, that is, he will remind you of everything I've already said. Now, here's the coolest thing. How was the Scripture written? Was it enlightened self-interest of those who were writing it? Or was it under the influence of the Holy Spirit? It was under influence of the Holy Spirit. I actually think that when the disciples are asking here, how will you manifest yourself to the rest of the world, this is a foreshadowing of things to come, meaning Jesus is giving us a glimpse that there is something coming that is not there right now. And it's going to be the written word of God written under the influence of the Holy Spirit who will bring to your mind the remembrance of things I have already told you. Because that is what this is. The entire New Testament is a restatement of what Jesus has already taught them. That includes the writings of Paul. There's nothing new in the writings of Paul. All of the writings of Paul, all through the New Testament, is a restatement of what God has already taught us. It's just a modern application in light of the crucifixion of Christ. So it all comes back to this same thing. The Holy Spirit will, will remind you of what I've already taught you. It is only by knowing the written Word of God that we will fully be equipped to recognize and filter out the tares from the wheat. That's the only way we do it, is by understanding the written Word of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. I know, it's painful, isn't it? When you find someone who claims to love Jesus and not his word, what you have found is someone who is either completely ignorant of the truth or deceived or both. They don't need your support, they need your ministry. Let me tell you what the Bible shows you, what the Word of God says to do when you find someone who has fallen for something like that. Galatians 6.1, brethren, if a man is overtaken in, in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. When you see someone who has been led astray, you bring them back. But to what? To the truth of the written Word of God. Because that's how we know the difference between what is good and what is evil. The second part of this, and I'm going to do this real quick, is the dragnet. A dragnet's not nothing. It doesn't get dragged along the bottom of the ocean. It's actually dragged along the ocean at a kind of a relative depth, and it just grabs anything that's there. Part of me wonders if this is talking about the world in general and the sorting at the end, or if this is talking about the church specifically. Now, follow me on this. See see if you can follow the, the, the thinking. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm not. But the net is not the world, right? It's just what has been gathered by the net from within the sea. To me, in light of the judgment coming, this sounds like the church, those who have been gathered into one place. And even within that gathering, there is a sorting. As much as we don't like it, there is a reality that all churches across the entire world are a mix of two types of people, those who have come to faith and those who come to church. And I'm not even going to pretend to know which you are. You know who you are. Maybe you have come to faith. Maybe you just come to church. I don't know. One is good... One not so good. One you want to be, the other one you don't want to be because there's a sorting that takes place in the end. And we look back over this chapter, we can see that God has power in the small things so that we can learn how to trust Him and follow Him and not trust ourselves. We submit to the process, remember? We can see that everything that is real, true, and, and of lasting value is found in a life that is committed to learning about and following the word of God and the will of God. And now we see that while we're walking through this broken world, we always have a choice to follow the truth. When we follow the truth, there is something that has to happen. We have to commit ourselves to that truth. It requires work on our part because there is coming a day when good is not enough Good is not going to be enough That which is godly Is gathered into the kingdom of heaven And that which is ungodly Is cast out It, it is that simple That's why Jesus says You're for me or against me there, is no fun. there are no fence riders You have either come to faith Or you occasionally come to church Pick but now there's a question that has to be answered. How does God know who to let in and who to cast out? Therefore by their fruits you will know them. Now I put this picture out of order so I'm going to skip back here. I apologize. But that is the difference between the fruit of a wheat and a tare. They look so similar right up to the point where they become harvestable and now to the trained eye it's very easy to walk into that field and pick out all the tears doesn't take hardly any effort at all the angels are trained going through life the word of God is what trains us no matter how good the devil can try to make something only god can make something that brings forth good fruit we learn to tell the difference between those two by leaning in and trusting in the living word of god because it is what he has given us to guide us make sense